Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 9th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. The Supreme Court hears a case seeking to kick Trump off of Colorado's ballot. Brazilian police seize Bolsonaro's passport. Internet access is cut off as Pakistanis head to the polls. A Putin critic is disqualified from Russia's election. Zelensky replaces Ukraine's military chief. The U.S. Senate advances a $95.3 billion foreign aid package. A U.S. strike kills an Iran-backed militia leader in Baghdad. The world sees its first year-long breach of the key 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit. A Japanese court approves gender change recognition without sterilization. And the U.S. outlaws AI-generated robocalls. The Supreme Court hears a Trump-Colorado ballot case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by SupremeCourt.gov, Associated Press, Fox Business, and CBS. The U.S. Supreme Court Thursday heard oral arguments concerning the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling to remove Republican former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 primary election ballot. Previously, the Colorado court voted 4-3 on December 19, 2023 to remove Trump from the ballot due to alleged violations of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution accusing the former president of, quote, engaging in insurrection during the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol. Attorney Jonathan Mitchell argued on Trump's behalf that Colorado's decision was wrong for numerous reasons, including its classification of the president as, quote, an officer of the United States, a necessary condition of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Mitchell also cited a decision from 1869, Griffin's case, which said Congress had to create a mechanism for enforcing Section 3. It has not. In response, Jason Murray, attorney for Norma Anderson and group of Colorado voters, argued that Trump's actions up to and during the Capitol riots disqualified him from public office and Colorado was exercising its right to safeguard its ballot. Shortly after the Supreme Court arguments, Trump held a press conference at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida, where he claimed the Capitol riots were, quote, an insurrection caused by Nancy Pelosi. And his comments on that day were, quote, very beautiful, very heartwarming statements. The Supreme Court has never previously ruled on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was added to the Constitution following the Civil War. The Colorado court's decision was the first time the provision was used to block a presidential candidate from the ballot. Thank you, Eric, for those facts. And on this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin with an anti-Trump narrative from CNN. The Constitution is clear when it comes to the consequences of inciting an insurrection. And when majorities in the Senate and House in 2021 moved forward with Trump's second impeachment, he was officially designated as an insurrectionist. So a third Trump run for America's highest office will place the U.S. democratic value system in potentially irreversible danger. We follow that with a pro-Trump narrative coming from the conservative treehouse. Despite the best attempts of political and legal conspirators, Colorado's anti-democratic attempts to remove Trump from its ballot will likely crumble under the scrutiny of the Supreme Court. The case is but another in a long line of illegitimate attempts to undermine Trump's road to the White House via a weaponization of the justice system. And we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community, and it says there's a 94% chance that if Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, his name will appear on Colorado's ballot on Election Day. 
In Brazil, police seize Bolsonaro's passport and arrest some of his close aides. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Breitbart, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, The New York Times, and Fox News. On orders of Supreme Court Justice Alexandra de Moraes, Brazilian federal police confiscated the passport of former right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro on Thursday for allegedly working on a draft decree to overturn the 2022 presidential elections and arrest de Moraes and pressuring military commanders to support a coup. This comes as part of a broader operation dubbed Tempus Veritatis that served dozens of precautionary measures, including four preventative arrest warrants. At least two former aides to Bolsonaro were reportedly among those named in the warrants, also arrested after being caught for reported illegal possession of a weapon. The Washington Post reported citing two anonymous police officials that the alleged coup plot was far more advanced than anticipated involving logistical and tactical planning in coordination with senior military officials. Court documents disclosed on Thursday claim that Almir Garnier, then head of the Navy, was prepared to put troops on the ground, and Army General Estevam Theophilou was organized to take measures to secure the coup. Bolsonaro had denied wrongdoing, claiming to be the victim of relentless politically motivated persecution despite being out of office for more than a year. He has already been barred from running for public office until 2030 for undermining faith in the established voting systems. Following his election defeat against Luis Inácio Lula da Silva in the closest presidential race in the country's modern history, Bolsonaro refrained from conceding his loss and filed a failed request along with his party to void ballots cast on the majority of electronic voting machines. Thanks, Melissa, for the facts of that story. The first spin is a left narrative coming from the Brazilian. Even if the coup failed, accountability for what happened in Brazil isn't only a matter of justice, but is crucial for the future of the country's democracy. The current investigation has revealed a coordinated, multi-pronged attempt by Bolsonaro and his accomplices to undermine the election's result. Despite the many similarities to the U.S. January 6th Capitol riots, the political influence of Brazil's military cannot be underestimated, and this is a concern that politicians must confront in the future. And the Wall Street Journal brings us a right narrative. You don't have to be a Bolsonaro supporter to see that Lula is using the judicial system as a means to punish his predecessors. Lula is a leftist career politician who was convicted on corruption charges before they were stunningly reversed by activist judges. Right-leaning figures across the nation are being censored, and checks and balances are being curtailed as the legal system is increasingly used as a weapon against opponents. We ought to be skeptical about charges against Bolsonaro in this environment. The nerds from Metacula say there's a 16% chance that Brazil will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. My apologies to all the Brazilians out there who are listening to me trying to pronounce everyone's name. (laughs) (laughs) I think you did a great job. Thank you. News from Pakistan as the internet has been shut down on election day. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, New York Times, Al Jazeera, and the Express Tribune. Internet data and call services were shut down in Pakistan 10 minutes before the polls opened for the general election, with the government calling the outages, quote, security measures due to recent incidents of terrorism. While Wi-Fi was reportedly still working, voters claimed they were unable to book taxis to go to the polling stations and couldn't coordinate travel to the ballot box with family members. Over 128 million registered voters went out to vote for more than 5,000 candidates running for 336 seats. 
Former Prime Minister Imran Khan, whose PTI party won the last election before he was ousted two years ago, is ineligible to run after being convicted of corruption. The two leading candidates are now former three-time Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif from the Nawaz Party and Bilawal Bhutto Zadari from the PPP Party. Members of Khan's PTI party also claim the internet outage kept them from using their party's app designed to help them find their respective voting locations. The military also announced that there were 51, quote, cowardly attacks across the country, resulting in 12 deaths, mostly security officials. The military also noted, however, that Election Day was, quote, generally peaceful due to the deployment of 137,000 army personnel and civil armed forces across the 6,000 most sensitive polling stations. According to one polling official, police also threatened to arrest PTI officials who established a booth near his voting station to provide information on candidates, as well as ordered him to block all photos of Khan at the booth. While Khan currently faces 34 years in prison, his rival, Sharif, was allowed to return to the country from exile to become the election's frontrunner. As of 11 p.m. local time, PPP candidate Asif Ali Zadari was winning with a little over 22,000 votes, with Sharif so far winning the Lahore province with a little over 12,000 votes. Several PTI-backed independent candidates were also winning in their respective districts as early counts were released. Thank you, Eric. We'll start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative from ABC News. It seems that former Prime Minister Sharif and his party are headed toward victory again this time to help fix the economic and terrorism challenges that have grown in the country since he left. While some have criticized the internet outage as a method of suppression, the bombings and shootings that occur throughout Election Day have shown the necessity of measures to stop even worse attacks from hindering the people's ability to vote. We counter that with the establishment critical narrative coming from Intercept. The government hinted at shutting down the internet before the election, and today it did. If the fraudulent arrests, convictions, and intimidation of Khan and his party, the most popular candidates in the country, weren't enough to expose this illegitimate regime, then nothing will. The U.S. State Department in 2022 urged Pakistan to remove Khan from office. And ever since, the military regime has used every tool it has to make sure of it. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 21% chance of civil war in Pakistan before 2036. In Russia, an anti-war candidate is disqualified from the presidential election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Euronews, CNN, TASS, and BBC. Russia's Central Election Commission on Thursday ruled that Boris Nadezhdin, an anti-war legislator, does not qualify for next month's presidential election after deeming that too many of the signatures Nadezhdin's campaign submitted were invalid. Per the election authority's rules, a candidate whose political party is not represented in parliament must gather at least 100,000 signatures from supporters. However, the commission deemed that the Moscow-area legislator did not legitimately fulfill the criteria. An independent candidate from the Civic Initiative Party, Nadez Dean, received nearly 105,000 signatures. However, the commission determined that 15% of the signatures were invalid, leaving him with only 95,587 legitimate signatures. In addition to falling short of the 100,000 threshold, Nadezdin was also disqualified for having more than 5% of his signatures invalidated. Critics say Nadezdin's disqualification is a sign of President Vladimir Putin's intolerance of criticism of the Ukraine war. And Nadezdin says he will appeal his removal after the commission declined his request to postpone the decision. In December, a fellow anti-war politician, Yekaterina Duntsova, was disqualified from the ballot over problems with her paperwork. 
In addition to Putin, who is overwhelmingly likely to secure his fifth term in office, the March 15-17 th election will include Leonid Slutsky of the Liberal Democratic Party, Vladislav Devankov of New People, Nikolay Karatinov of Communist Party. Nadezhdin is currently a counselor from the Dolgoprudny area, and he has been a longtime critic of Putin. He will receive a final decision on Saturday regarding his appeal, but the commission has been clear on its stance. Those were the facts, and the first spin is a pro-establishment narrative, and it comes from Politico. Despite claiming to have the overwhelming support of the Russian people, Vladimir Putin is clearly scared of any illegitimate opposition. That's the only reason his electoral commission would disqualify Boris Nadezhdin from next month's presidential election. Everyone knows that Putin will imprison or even kill his political opponents, so it's no surprise he made sure that Nadezhdin couldn't run. Regardless, Putin's support at home and abroad is crumbling, as people realize the scale of his authoritarian ways. Here's the establishment critical narrative from RT. Boris Nadezhdin failed to qualify for ballot access on multiple grounds and was not allowed on the ballot. It's really that simple. While some anti-Russian and pro-Western forces may try to spin this situation as an authoritarian conspiracy, this is not the case. Russia will hold its fair and free election with four candidates next month, and the people will decide who is in charge of their nation, regardless of the whims of the so-called rules-based international order. According to the nerds from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of president of Russia by October of 2028. On to Ukraine as Zelensky replaces the military chief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and New York Times. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has dismissed Valery Zeluzhny from his position as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, replacing him with Oleksandr Sirsky, who had been the commander of Ukrainian land forces since 2019. Zeluzhny was reportedly offered a different position, but turned it down. Zelensky and Zeluzhny have been at odds publicly for some time, beginning with a disagreement over the former commander's essay in The Economist last year, claiming the war had reached a stalemate after Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. Zelensky also rejected Zeluzhny's call for hundreds of thousands of more troops and a return to a more defensive approach. Sirsky was a leader in the initial defense during the first month of the war, after which he was credited with leading a successful counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region later in 2022. However, Sirsky is seen as unpopular among some soldiers. Given what has been described as his Soviet-style leadership of leaving forces under fire for too long, Sirsky is taking the helm as Russia has increased its attacks on the front line, as well as Ukrainian military commanders claiming they're facing troop shortages, particularly among frontline infantry soldiers. The decision also comes as a poll by the Kyiv Institute of Sociology has reported that Zelensky's 62% popularity is much lower than that of Zeluzhny, whose approval stands at 88%. Zeluzhny, who has criticized the Ukrainian government for what he called defense industry issues, such as production bottlenecks, has been seen by some as a potential political contender against Zelensky. Since the failed counteroffensive, which was backed by billions of dollars in U.S. aid, Ukraine has recently been on the defensive amid new Russian ground attacks. While the EU recently approved a $54 billion economic aid package, U.S. lawmakers are still debating over a $60 billion package of their own. Those were the facts, and we'll start the spins with Narrative A from Newsweek. While Zeluzhny made a valiant effort and led the country through its first two years of the war, 
Sierski is Ukraine's most experienced officer, with a successful resume dating back to the war with Russia in 2014. As Ukraine faces new challenges amid shifting battlefield realities, President Zelensky has to do what's best for Ukrainians, which right now is implementing the best people and systems to defeat Moscow. BBC News brings us Narrative B. Zeluzhny was originally picked over more senior officers because his capabilities put him in the perfect position to combat what seemed like an impossible task in early 2022. Not only has Ukraine lost a man who turned his country into a world-class military force overnight, but one who continued to maintain that strength for two years, but one who continued to maintain that strength for two years. Replacing him will do nothing but lower morale among Ukraine's people and their soldiers. And the nerds are at it again with another prediction, saying there's a 50% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine by March 2026. The Senate advances a foreign aid package after the border deal fails. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, Politico, Fox News, CNN, and The New York Post. The U.S. Senate voted 67 to 32 on Thursday in favor of a procedural motion to advance a standalone foreign aid supplemental bill just a day after the collapse of a bipartisan bill linking foreign aid to rigorous security measures at the southern border. The $95.3 billion package to fund Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan comes as the broader measure, which had been privately negotiated for four months, failed to advance in a 49-50 to vote, far from the 60 votes needed. Four Democrats, including Alex Padilla of California, Bob Mendez of New Jersey, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and Ed Marley of Massachusetts, as well as independent Bernie Sanders of Vermont, joined a majority of GOP senators who voted against the broader bill. Meanwhile, lead negotiator Senator James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma, and Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Mitt Romney of Utah and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska voted to advance it. In addition to providing aid to U.S. allies, the Joint Border Security and Foreign Aid Bill earmarked $20 billion to address the ongoing crisis at the southern border and would have capped daily migrant crossings at 5,000, narrowed the definition of, but expedited, asylum claims, and offered immediate work permits to asylum seekers. Meanwhile, Thursday's stripped-down bill, which is still pending final package in the Senate before it can move to the House, includes $60 billion for Ukraine, $14.1 billion for Israel, $4.8 billion for Taiwan, and humanitarian assistance to Gaza. It's unclear when a final Senate vote will occur. This comes as the House rejected a standalone Israel bill on Tuesday, which would have provided more than $17 billion in military aid for the country by a vote of 250 to 180, with most Democrats and the conservative House Freedom Caucus Republicans opposing the bill that required two-thirds affirmative votes to pass. Melissa. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much for those facts. I do appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome, Eric. Hey, I know yeah, you wanted I mean, those facts. Yes. Yes, we needed to hear those. All right. Well, the first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. Republicans have now made clear that all their talk about securing the border is just an attempt to weaponize the issue for election purposes. Americans must be fully aware that Donald Trump and his fellow MAGA Republicans, rather than Joe Biden, are to blame for the failure of the toughest and fairest immigration reform proposed in decades. And here's the Republican narrative from the American conservative. Let alone that the so-called border deal would allocate three times more money for Ukraine than for the southern border, provisions allegedly intended to bolster security in the border were completely unacceptable, 
This fake border reform would, in fact, make the situation worse at Biden's lenient policies as Biden's lenient policies would become law. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 75 percent chance that the GOP will control the Senate after the 2024 elections. News from Baghdad as a U.S. strike kills an Iran-backed militia leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, NPR, The Guardian and Politico. The Pentagon stated on Wednesday that a top commander of the Iran-backed militant group Kataib Hezbollah were killed after his car was hit by a U.S. drone strike in eastern Baghdad. According to the Pentagon, the dead militia commander was the mastermind behind the attack in Jordan last month, which killed three American service members. Wednesday's strike comes as leaders of Iranian-sponsored militias have reportedly conducted at least 168 attacks against American forces in the area. Though Washington originally reported one fatality in the strike, Iran-backed militia officials claimed that three were killed, including Wassam Muhammad Sabir al-Sadi, nicknamed Abu Bakir al-Sadi, the man in charge of the group's Syrian operations. Kataib Hezbollah declared last week that the organization would no longer target U.S. forces. American aircraft have since attacked several militia locations in Syria and Iraq. Following the strike, Iraqi MPs once again called for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from their nation. The U.S. Central Command claimed responsibility for the Baghdad attack, stating there were no indications of collateral damage or civilian casualties at this time. The Biden administration has cautiously indicated that it has no intention of starting a conflict with Tehran. Wednesday's drone strike comes as the war in Gaza continues and the Iran-sponsored Houthis in Yemen continue to assault commercial ships in the Red Sea. Those were the facts, and we'll start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Voice of America. The message from Washington is clear. If U.S. forces are attacked, it will do everything it takes to protect its troops and interests. The U.S. has no intention of backing down when challenged, and those responsible will be held accountable with a multi-tiered response. The establishment critical narrative comes from Middle East Eye. While Iraq may have previously supported the presence of U.S. troops in the fight against the Islamic State, America's broadening regional conflicts have now caused more death and destruction in the country than there otherwise would be. It's time for the U.S. to remove its 2,500 troops from Iraq. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 13% chance the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. In our next story, the world sees its first year above the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Nature, The New York Times, France 24, and CBC. For the first time ever, global average temperatures rose over 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, through a 12-month period between February 2023 and January 2024. The EU Copernicus Climate Change Service, or C3S, reported on Thursday. In 2015, the world's nations vowed to try to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrialization levels, which is seen as key to avoiding climate change's worst effects. Thursday's report, however, doesn't mean the Paris Agreement has been breached, as the UN deal refers to long-term temperatures. This comes as a study published in the journal Nature earlier this week warned that global warming was already 1.7 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2020, predicting it could be above 2 degrees Celsius by the end of the decade, nearly two decades earlier than expected. 
Some researchers, however, have cautioned that the study, which derived its findings on the chemical composition of sea sponges in the Caribbean, only observed a single location, which doesn't necessarily represent the world. While last year's breach was not a permanent one, scientists say it caused heat waves, droughts, floods, and water scarcity, in addition to costing humanity socially and economically. Meanwhile, the C3S also reported that the world saw its warmest January ever this year, surpassing the previous record set in 2020. While according to records that go back as far as 1850, 2023 was ranked Earth's hottest ever. Melissa, thanks for those facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from the conversation. To say that humanity has a tough task at hand would be an understatement as far as climate change is concerned. And if the reports of the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold being crossed across 12 months is anything to go by, we may have even missed the chance to prevent global warming. This latest data must renew efforts to cut global emissions in half by 2030. And here's Narrative B from The Atlantic. Since the Paris Agreement of 2015 set up the 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark, the world has obsessed over this figure. Activists, business entities, and governments have all aligned themselves with this consensus goal. But it doesn't represent a scientific threshold or an ecological tipping point for the planet, as is feared. It's more of a moral threshold just to get the world to act. As expected, the nerds from Metaculus have a nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that global carbon dioxide emissions will peak by 2034. And now we go to Japan, as a court allows gender change without sterilization. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, WION, Guardian, and Japan Today. A Japanese court on Wednesday approved a transgender man's request to have his gender changed in official records without first undergoing sterilization surgery. The ruling will allow Takakito Usui to change his gender to male on his family registry. Usui originally applied for the revision five years ago but was rejected. In the most recent ruling, the court found the hormone therapy he had undergone made him eligible for legal gender recognition. The ruling is the first of its kind since October when Japan's Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional to require the removal of reproductive organs as a precondition for legal recognition of a gender other than that assigned at birth. The ruling only applies to the provision requiring sterilization and not the constitutionality of requiring other procedures. The October Supreme Court ruling addressed a 2004 decision stating that people who want to register a gender change were required to have their reproductive organs removed, including ovaries and testes. Since 2004, more than 10,000 Japanese residents have had their gender formally changed. Those were the facts, and here's a narrative A from U.S. News. The laws in Japan are evolving more quickly than public acceptance of LGBTQ people is. Japan remains a deeply conservative country rooted in conformity, and many LGBTQ people remain closeted in fear of ostracization at school or work. It's important to maintain this view of Japan's unique cultural context before being too harsh on the government. The Guardian gives us Narrative B. It's Japan's government, not the public, that needs to change. LGBTQ rights in the country are still far behind many other developed nations and more needs to be done to give members of this community appropriate legal rights and protections. The government is still very traditional and conservative and is resistant to accepting gender and sexual diversity in its policies. On our final story today, the FCC makes AI robocalls illegal. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, the Associated Press, USA Today, Fox News, and Breitbart. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, on Thursday ruled that robocalls using voice cloning technologies are now illegal, effective immediately. The decision comes as the use of artificial intelligence to clone people's voices, particularly famous people and politicians, continues to rise. The unanimous ruling cracks down on AI-generated voice cloning using the Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 1991, which restricts junk calls that use artificial and pre-recorded voice messages. Under the new guidelines, the FCC has the power to fine companies that use AI voices in their calls or block the service providers that carry them. Regulators' heightened focus on AI robocalls after a January message using the voice of President Joe Biden encouraged New Hampshire voters to skip the state's presidential primary. New Hampshire's attorney general's office is currently investigating the incident as an attempt at voter suppression. New Hampshire's attorney general, John Formella, revealed that two Texas companies were behind the fraudulent calls and he vowed potential civil and criminal action at the state and federal levels. Meanwhile, the FCC announcement said that bad actors who violate the law could be forced to pay more than $23,000 per illegal call. The FCC in November launched a notice of inquiry to build a record for how to combat AI-generated calls, and in December, the agency proposed a nearly $300 million fine for two men who were behind notorious scam calls, claiming, quote, we've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. Thursday's ruling built upon the current rules that enable state law enforcement to punish scammers. Existing law prohibited telemarketers from using automated dialers or artificial or pre-recorded voice messages to cell phones while outlawing such calls to landlines without prior written consent from call recipients. AI calls are now classified as artificial under the law and are punishable by the same standards. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Daily Dot. The FCC has taken staunch and swift action against AI robocalls in a move that goes a long way in protecting election integrity. The rise of AI has fueled deceptive, deep-fake videos of politicians. And just weeks ago, the technology was used to interfere with New Hampshire's Democratic primary. By clarifying and expanding on existing laws, the FCC is making it clear that bad actors will not be allowed to use novel technology to subvert democracy. And here's Narrative B from The Conversation. The threat AI poses to democracy is real and imminent, and Thursday's ruling from the FCC may not be enough to prevent AI-generated disinformation from impacting elections. As AI becomes more developed, videos and calls imitating politicians can become more convincing and powerful. Cracking down on robocalls was definitely a must-do, but the FCC needs to implement more robust laws that target all different forms of AI-generated misinformation. If more robust regulation doesn't go further soon, faith in democracy could continue to erode. And the final nerd narrative of today's podcast says there is a 60% chance that AI will be meaningfully discussed by both candidates in the 2024 U.S. presidential debate. And that's coming from Metaculus. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 9th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast. 